This is Duke University. I'd like to invite uh, the founder of Ashoka, 30 years ago, uh, a real pioneer, uh, before the word was even coined, social entrepreneur, Bill Drayton, my good friend, to come to the stage. I don't know if you know, but Bill actually trained as a lawyer and had a career in the public sector with uh, EPA before he found his uh, permanent footing. I'd also like to invite um, what we call, who we call the, the father of social entrepreneurship education. Um, somebody actually, I think, called you once the Johnny Appleseed because you uh, started the first class on social entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School in 1995 went to Stanford and now proudly here at Duke University where you've played a pioneering role. Professor Greg Dees. I don't know if you realize that Greg did not study social entrepreneurship. He, in fact, has his PhD in philosophy. This is true. Yeah. Are the mics working with uh, everyone? I think so. It's like it, yes. Okay, sound okay. Well, I am thrilled uh, to welcome everybody here this morning. For those of you who did not have the good fortune to participate in the TEDx, uh, it was quite a stellar array of, of incredible speakers and powerful ideas. Was it not? And part of what we talked about was uh, in fact, trying to answer this question, is the university a force for good? There were a few challenges. Uh, Phil, our, our moderator, actually said, uh, speaking on behalf of his alma mater and yours, uh, Bill, Yale University, um, success is defined by exclusion. Um, they proudly talk about the billions not served. So we, in fact, um, were challenging ourselves to think about the role of the university in very different ways. And there was a clear tension between the selectivity of the best universities and uh, universities in general, if you look at the numbers on the planet, and the need for universities to play a force for good, um, to respond to the, the deep challenges that people like Derek Ellerman or Paul Rice um, brought together and challenged us to think well beyond our own organization and, in fact, our own field, um, to, to think in new ways. And uh, whether it was talking about universities as knowledge factories, uh, the combination of bringing research to action, or universities as pathfinders, helping young people to, to find their, their way. And in fact, um, one person, Matthew, said, uh, you'll now be asked not what's your major, but what's your problem. What's the problem you're working on? Um, because of this drive to, to try to work across disciplines, um, the, the role of university as convener of troublemakers, or rebels, as Ngozi uh, called changemakers, um, or the, the role of university um, as moneymakers, as tremendous resources um, that we were encouraged by Maya and others to look around us and figure out how to tap and others. So part of what I'd like to do since um, we've all been looking at, um, uh, at this uh, development over at least three decades 
is step back and, and um, share with us, if you would, Bill, your perspective on, on how this field has, in fact, emerged in what is relatively a, a short period of time and why today we could have with us some 70 universities from 10 countries actually here talking about the way that universities can be a, a force for positive change. When you started, we didn't even know what this, this term was. Uh, how do you explain it? Uh, I think we're living at a, we're, we're all very privileged to live at a moment where the deep underlying historical forces uh, are moving very fast and accelerating. And when things change, you need people to manage and lead the change. And I think that's why both the social entrepreneurs and the universities are very critical. And the points you made right at the beginning, being forces for good, <clears throat> when the systems are uh, changing faster and faster, you need a force, a combination of forces that are pushing for the good of all. So social entrepreneurs are not defined by field. Everyone's in education, for example, business, religions, whatever. Um, but those are the social entrepreneurs are the people who deep within them are committed to the good of all. That's what they're trying to make happen. And that's also what the universities have been committed to for the long term. And, and that's why I think we have this very powerful emerging alliance represented by everyone here. But it may be helpful to sort of look at the force, the strategic environment that has made the field emerge. Uh, quite literally, as you were saying, Susan, no one had any idea what a social entrepreneur was. You start using that word, people would look at you glassy-eyed and uh, the smart ones would say, oh, that's an oxymoron. Uh, the, uh, so what is that force? I think we all know what it is. The rate at which change is accelerating is still exponential. And so is the increase in the number of change makers. And probably even more important, so is the increase in the combinations of change makers. Here we have an example. And the increase in the number of change makers and combinations, the scale, the complexity, the geographic scope, and the velocity of combinations. This is a very, very powerful set of forces, and it is driving everything before it. And it's Certainly people here know an exponential curve has a certain logic to it that is very hard to resist. Um, so the old way of organizing society in hierarchies is failing. And the hierarchies are still dominant in our minds as well as in how we structure the world, but it's a past, not a future. Um, it's not the old hierarchies, it's the Silicon Valleys and the Bangalores, not the Detroits and the Calcuttas. And um, that's true for individual organizations, it's true for individuals. 
the hierarchy is a few people managing whatever the nice verb you want to use, everyone else, and the presumption is that everyone else is doing a repetitive function. Well, this is clearly a model that can't work when change is not just coming at you from one direction slowly, the chemical revolution or something like that, but it's everything around you is changing faster and faster. And the way an organization or a society or an individual contributes value is by saying, oh, look at these changes going on. How do I, how do we, a team, a combination of teams, a constantly changing combination of teams, because a change process is not a repetitive process by definition, how do we contribute? So you form a team. The world becomes a team of teams. This is a radically different structure. And what does that mean for individuals? Well, individuals have to have a very different set of skills. Uh, to be a member of a team, a team requires everyone to be a player. To be a player, what skills do you have to bring to bear? Well, in a world defined by change, you have to be able to contribute to change. You have to see it and be able to contribute to it. The old model of growing up, and this is one of the places where universities are really important, was learning knowledge and rules, which was fine for a static society. It's absolutely inadequate today. But our whole educational system is set up on that assumption. Uh, and parenting is as well. Now, uh, what do we need instead? It's Every child must master the skill of empathy. If they don't, they're going to hurt people and disrupt institutions, and they're out. No one cares how much knowledge you have, computer science included. Um, every teen has to master empathy, teamwork, leadership, change making. Because if they had adulthood without those skills and without knowing they have those skills and without defining themselves that way, how are they going to contribute to change? Especially when the hierarchies are gone and the repetitive functions being an adequate basis for employment is gone, which it will be in 10 or 15 years. So if you're managing, we've got a lot of people from business school. We're in a business school. You've got to manage in a completely different way. A, rat, a rapidly moving team of teams is very different. Right, so now, the social entrepreneurs become absolutely critical, and that's why our field has come up so quickly. Uh, it's not just the individual institutions, it's the systems of society. And what defines an entrepreneur? Entrepreneurs are people who work on the systems, the large system change. You need millions and millions, you need everyone to be a change maker. Because all the institutions have to be constantly changing to be able to contribute. There are some people who have to worry about the systems as a whole. And so that's the entrepreneur's job. Uh, we need the social entrepreneurs focused on the good of the whole, because otherwise the system is going to go amok. Right now we're losing privacy because we need preventive surveillance. Uh, that's a fact, because Moore's law of 30% compounding every year, lowering the cost of connecting the dots has gotten to the point where connecting the dots infinitely is basically free. 
And because so many of the entrepreneurs, the business entrepreneurs in this information field have a new paradigm. We give you something, we get information, we sell the information. Well, that's not friendly to privacy either. So three powerful forces going against privacy. Well, who's going to say the system is about to go off the cliff? That's why you need the social entrepreneurs, and that's why the Social Entrepreneurs University Alliance is so absolutely critical. As you move into this uh, period where things are changing faster and faster and you can't assume the systems, you need a really powerful force, a team of teams that is always pushing for the good of all. Once we're through the transition, that team will broaden out and that'll be much more normal. But right now, we have a very critical role to play. And that's, I think, why the field has grown up, because the need is so great. Very interesting. You've, you've put a lot of ideas on the table here. And certainly to unpack um, what you're talking about, I think we, we need to turn to, to Greg and, and ask him, from, from the, because you've been inside this and seeing it, and at the same time helping to build it, um, creating um, strategies, in fact, to bring about a tipping point where today, Social entrepreneurship is a fairly widely used term um, and understood maybe differently um, by people, but um, to the point where, I mean, Oxford University Press actually came to David Bornstein uh, to, and myself to, to write this book because they felt social entrepreneurship needed to be one of those, those terms explained in their series, What Everyone Needs to Know. They started with Islam, what everyone needs to know about Islam. Then they did one on Kosovo. They, they said, we need one now on social entrepreneurship. So clearly something's changed. From your perspective, Greg, from the academic sphere, um, how, does, how does the emergence of this field look to you? Yesterday, Joanna went back um, and started quoting research that was done in 1911. Um, so uh, it wasn't necessarily a new phenomenon, yet it really has emerged and crested. Um, and, and what are you seeing in terms of um, the trends in the field, uh, the challenges, what worries you, and where you see real signs of hope? Sure. Uh, it's almost impossible to follow Bill, though. I'm, my head is still swirling with the ideas. That <laughs> well, we're going to. I know, I know. I get my mind around them. Um, so, so, so let me just try. I'll stumble out of the gate here, though. Um, so that, that, thank you, Bill, for that. Um, so, yeah. So in ac academia, I think we were well behind what was happening in practice. It was a bit of a lag. Um, Johanna may find some references back to 1911. Still, my experience when Bill was doing his work at Ashoka in the early years is that we were still, um, those of us uh, in academia, still uh, you know, a decade or so behind what was happening uh, in the world. Um, I think we were watching, we were observing, we were dragging our feet a bit. Um, so when uh, my experience, and I was, um, first, when Bill started his work, I, ha I had the good fortune of being at, at McKinsey as a consultant. Um, and the way I learned about Bill's work is that we had mutual friends. Bill had also been at McKinsey at one point, and so... Uh, oh my God, there, it's a McKinsey <laughs> conspiracy. Yeah, sadly, uh, sadly, <laughs> I, I, 
<laughs> it is, and uh, we had we had some mutual friends who who uh, at least uh, made me aware of what Bill was up to. I left McKinsey to go to, to the Yale School of Management initially, and um, Bill would occasionally come up up to Yale because of his Yale Law School connections and talk about his work. So I was aware of it, but we still weren't fully uh, incorporating it. Even even at Yale SOM, which was a school that integrated public and private management and one program, we, we did a bit of it, and I think we were starting to integrate it, but it still wasn't fully there. Um, and then when I went off to Harvard, I proposed this, um, and this was 1989, 1990, I proposed a course on social entrepreneurship. The reaction was, that's not what we do here. We're a business school. And I think this, was, this goes back to the, the, the compartmentalization of universities and the way they tend to be siloed. And the idea that if you put the word social on the front of it, it didn't belong at a business school. Mm -hmm. And it belongs somewhere else. That, that's what I was told. Maybe the Kennedy School is somewhere else. But the Kennedy School wasn't going to be doing it either at the time. So the, the entrepreneurship part of it probably bothered them a bit. So there was a little, you know, where did it fit? Didn't seem to fit anywhere. Um, so we were slow to get, to get to it. It took a few more years, but I think the pressure of what Bill just described, the changing events outside of the university, um, created a, a, a kind of a pressure and opportunity and idea that we needed to be doing something. Um, and, and eventually, uh, and this took uh, four more years, um, the university realized we needed to be doing something, and, um, and we did start to create this initiative on social enterprise at Harvard, and I had the chance to dust off my old course proposal and uh, resubmit it. Um, and then the, the advice, though, then, by the way, was to change the name of the course so that social didn't come first. It's, if, if you look at the course catalog, then it was entrepreneurship in the social sector. So entrepreneurship had to come first, social had to, had to come later. Um, but that, that was the idea, but it, but it was still the idea we needed to do something in this space. Um, what's really exciting to me is that this is spread beyond business schools now. I think there's a, a great recognition that this is, this is not just about business schools, and it's not just about bringing business tools to solving social problems. It's about bringing multiple disciplines to solving social problems and, and integrating business tools and skills with uh, skills from other, uh, other parts of the university. And that's the, one of the big challenges I think we have now, which is uh, breaking down some of those boundaries and those silos. And I think those were echoed a bit in some of the TED Talks uh, last night. I think it's, and, and one of the things that certainly um, Ashoka, you can take some credit for is trying to break down those boundaries by insisting that these be university-wide and that we, we get a, we, these are not just school-based initiatives. Um, because I think that's extremely important. Um, and, and some of this, you know, getting beyond the school boundaries happened a bit accidentally. Kaufman Foundation, I think by accident, where they were insisting on, on university-wide entrepreneurship initiatives. And I think Kaufman was thinking, in many cases, pure business entrepreneurship. And what they found is when they opened it up university-wide is that a lot of people were interested in social entrepreneurship. And that, that was the key to really engaging uh, the university community. So that turned out to be an important part of it. Um, and, and UNC, of course, Holden Thorpe and Buck Goldstein were here yesterday and found that social entrepreneurship had to be part of what they were doing down there. And it's just it's happened at a number of other, University of Illinois, a number of other schools that were Kaufman campuses found that to be true. And I think that um, when you broaden it out, uh, the social entrepreneurship part of it is an important part of it. 
and the students will demand it. Uh, I think students from around the university, if they want to be entrepreneurial, many of them want to tackle the social problems. That's what, what they're going to want to be engaged in. Um, and that's the skills, the skills they wanted, the skills you just described, Bill, and I think we need to find a way to convey those. And they're not just resident and business schools, so we've got to get beyond that boundary. And so that's the, those are the trends that I've, I've seen, uh, and they, they certainly, I think, are brought about by these external changes. Um, and we lagged a bit. We were a little bit slow to get on that. Uh, and I think now we're getting onto it. Uh, and I think now we're running into the challenges of how do we do this within a, an institution or an organization, a uh, university that's, that in many cases is very bureaucratic, very siloed, and we have to be the ones to break down some of those boundaries. We have to be the change makers within that organization. Mm. That's, in fact, that's that our was role. echoed a lot yesterday when, when people were talking about um, taking up the challenge. And Holden and Buck actually quoted uh, you, Bill, as inspiring them to, to see entrepreneurship in, uh, in a wider way, including social in the definition. Uh, and uh, they were arguing, uh, they've got a new book out, the universities as engines of in innovation, um, and it's all about widening the definition and opening the tent um, to be more inclusive. And, and, and yet, uh, Greg, Part of the, the challenge to work in a multidisciplinary way um, uh, is, I mean, it's tough. You had to, you know, you were advised to change the name of your course. Um, I've been yes. working with and advising uh, uh, New York University's Reynolds program on social entrepreneurship, and they've succeeded in creating a university-wide program. Um, but I think there are a lot of lessons um, that have been packed in the last 20 years on how universities actually are, are, are getting uh, traction on campuses. From your perspective, what do you think are some of the keys um, to, to transforming the university from siloed fortresses into a place where you really can enable uh, this kind of problem solving and impact? Mm. Well, I, you know, and I, I don't have any magic answers because I think, I think that, I mean, re what you've done with Reynolds, you, you may actually have some insights that we don't have because we haven't built that kind of program yet fully across Duke. We're in the midst of doing that now. I think one of the keys is you've clearly got to generate some support at the top. I mean, we have a supportive provost who, uh, and president who care a lot, I think, about building bridges across mm -hmm. the university. And for us, it's been, um, we've worked center to center across the university. So we actually have a number of centers around Duke who care about the kinds of problems that we care about. So there's a, Center at the Public Policy School, which is run by Ed Sklute, uh, and it's the Center for Strategic Philanthropy and Civil Society, um, but a lot of overlap with our interest in social entrepreneurship. Um, there are centers that are involved with specific issues that uh, are amenable to social entrepreneurship solutions, not just centers on entrepreneurship or innovation, but centers around particular issues like global health. Um, or engineering world health. So there, there are centers like that. There are centers on the environment. So for us, um, it's a matter of building alliances uh, around the university with folks who have uh, like uh, similar challenges and who can see value in partnering with us, who see that we have value to add uh, as we work with them. So I think that if you're going to break down those silos, you've got to have a value proposition. You've got to have something that you're offering to others in the university that they can see they're going to they're get value out of. It, it, you've been on a lot of campuses, though. It, 
Yes. Is it about money and tenure? I mean, talk, uh, talk frankly to us, well, there uh, are Greg, those, not, yes. about, yeah, not about okay. Duke, but uh, all right. we've yes. got folks who are just Please. getting into this, money, and they're going to break their teeth on the same walls sure. that you've seen. Well, yeah, Why no, I think money and tenure are, are both serious issues. Um, so, yeah, let me, t I'll talk about both of those and, and yeah, and I'll, and I'll throw in some others. So, so there, yeah, tenure is a, is a serious problem. I think this is a lot easier for faculty who are already tenured and for faculty who are not on the tenure track, um, it, simply because they don't have at stake that issue of coming up for promotion, uh, where they may uh, run into the problem of, of of, of having to struggle with publications that don't fit neatly into some A-level, top-level journal in their field, um, because that's, that can be a challenge. So if, if folks are not tenured, if they're on the tenure track and they're not yet tenured, at least at a, a major research university, they have got to be publishing in leading journals, and typically those are field-based journals, and they're often very narrow, and so they have to be focusing on research. And that, that could be very difficult for them to also be worrying about building these relationships across uh, disciplinary boundaries. Now, some of them will say, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway, because I care about this stuff. And some of those are going to end up being the great pioneers in these fields. And they're going to get, some of them will get promoted by, despite the odds. Um, others are going to have, have difficulty. So we've had faculty uh, who've done that. Um, and um, some of them uh, have have done okay, and some have not. Um, who've 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 mm -hmm. uh, decided to buck the odds? We uh, I can think of one junior faculty, and I won't mention names, who, despite uh, the advice of uh, his department chair, said, "I'm going to do research in this area, and I'm I'm going to try to publish it in the leading journal in our field." Um, and uh, th this person did, um, despite being told not to do that. Um, the person is no longer uh, at, at that at the institution where they were doing that work. Mm. Um, mm. They did get it published in that leading journal, though, eventually. Uh, but they didn't. They didn't get to stay at that institution. They were not promoted. And uh, so these things can get tricky. They can get very tricky. So I think you need, if you can get it, tenured faculty leadership, or you need. Um, people who are, uh, who are willing to buck the system and take the chances. Um, so I think that is an issue. Money, you certainly need money to do this. I think, I think having the funding to do it um, is crucial. It makes it a lot easier for the university to say yes uh, to whatever you're trying to do. There's no, I think there's no question about that. Um, and I think you really have to engage people. So we, we tried it. At Stanford, we created the Center for Social Innovation. When we created it, the idea was to make it university-wide. We had a uh, university, a, a list of faculty affiliates who were all across the university. Um, while I was at Stanford, I also, in addition to teaching at the business school, I taught a couple undergrad courses. I co-taught a law school seminar um, and had a chance to get around the university. We did that. Uh, but we didn't really engage those affiliates very mm. well. And that, that turned out not to really build a strong university base. Mm. So I think you have to really engage people. You have to... To, to create something that, that where they feel they can contribute and where they're getting something out of it. Um, and, we, and we had very senior tenured people from around the university, which if we had really engaged them, I think it would have been a, an even stronger uh, university-based center and not just, uh, it turned out to be largely a business school-based center. So 
other centers were created at Stanford, and it's a little more fragmented there. Thank you. Thank you. Bill, you've been talking on college campuses for 30 years, and in advising more recently, I think, uh, uh, people at various levels. Um, it's not unlike trying to change other professions, is it? I mean, Ashoka's got more than, I think, 2,500 now uh, fellows, you know, leading social entrepreneurs in 70 countries. And whether we're talking about how to change the way babies are born, or how we die, or how uh, the legal profession um, does its work, what advice do you, do you offer to universities on how they change this very old and enduring institution? And what have you seen that, that really works? Uh, well, I, I just want to make a comment first. I think Greg has played a very key role. You're way too modest about it. It has been difficult, and you've pioneered this not in one campus, but a whole series of very demanding campuses. So thank you. Uh, second comment. So does that mean you're advising faculty to leave and go around now? <laughs> <laughs> Spread well, the wealth? Spread the wealth up from it's school. the well, cross-pollinization strategy. Huh? Well, especially if you end up at Duke. Yeah. <laughs> um, Second thing, I've suddenly realized that we are in the same league as Kosovo. And Islam. <laughs> um, so how, do, how does any, any institution change? It is a function of what value is it providing to the world? Because the world will value it in response. And right now, we have this absolutely profound historic change that is, has been building for centuries, and we're just about to go over the tipping point. Remember, those curves are exponential, so it's taken a long time to build to this point. And um, this is, again, precisely where I think the uh, social entrepreneurs and the universities coming together is, again, really important. Um, and there's, there's, been, there's a new step that has emerged in social entrepreneurship, uh, collaborative entrepreneurship, that is at the heart of this. Um, because it's the results of collaborative entrepreneurship that's producing knowledge and action combined together that is going to move the world very profoundly and that any university, any department, ignores this is going to be left in the dust, even in terms of conventional knowledge. Uh, you say the word entrepreneur, you typically think of one person who upsets everyone around them. Uh, well, that is still very powerful, but collaborative entrepreneurship is quantum leaps ahead. Um, and we've been working on this at Ashoka for literally 15 years. Uh, in the last four or five years, it's really become very clear, and we have a dozen of these collaborative entrepreneurships underway. Uh, and I think if I could give you an example of one or two, and as I do, ask yourself, is this relevant to the business school, the school of ed, to teachers in sociology, or whatever your field is? And I think you'll find the answer is Yes, very. And one of the main purposes of Ashoka U is bringing these two together. And the people in this room are the people on each campus who are 
the entrepreneurs figuring out how do we get our university, how do we get the universities to make this change? So it's, this is why this meeting is so, I think, really very important. So here's an example of collaborative entrepreneurship. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, any child that does not master empathy, which is a learned school skill, not a genetic inheritance, is going to be marginalized. They'll be thrown out. They will not have a role in society, which is the worst thing you can do to any human being. And we have 25, 30% of the people on the planet who are in that condition now, and it's not getting a whole lot better. Uh, the level of empathetic skill that's required is going up every year because the world is getting more interconnected, more complex, more moving pieces, and all the pieces are moving faster and faster. That means less and less of anyone's life is covered by rules. They're always changing. They haven't been invented yet, etc., etc. Uh, in that situation, if you don't have the skill to understand what is going on in the mind and spirit of all the people around you, layers out into the future and in combinations, institutions and groups, you will hurt people and you will disrupt institutions and you're out. And typically you're part of a group that doesn't have this set of skills. That's why you didn't get it at home, you didn't get it in the streets, and schools aren't providing it. Uh, and so the group falls further and further behind. And that's one of the main causes of increasing inequity, increasing income, unequal distribution. Um, give, give us an example of what you're talking about, though. Um, empathy, I think, is something that we understand as an abstract notion. Uh, how do you teach it? You're saying it's a skill that can be taught in a university setting? Well, it, this, empathy really comes earlier. You need to work on it all through life, but it's really important to start at the beginning. So Canadian fellow, Mary Gordon, some of you know her. Uh, she focused on this problem in her classroom. Uh, she brings an infant less than one year old, T-shirt labeled the professor, infant lies on green blanket. First graders, third graders sit in a circle around and they've got to figure out what the professor is saying and later what the professor is feeling. And they have the example of the mother-child empathy in front of them. Very quick limbic, limbic learning. Now why is it so quick? Because we are born with the genetic need to be part of society. That is absolutely fundamental. You can't survive if you don't do that and that's why being Marginalized is so enormously painful and cruel. So the kids get this right away. 20 hours, you know, a couple of hours a month over eight months and you have it. Uh, other fellows, um, Jill Violette from California, she's bringing recess back to the schools and her methodology is group play. Well, what is group play? That's how kids uh, practice empathy. And Eric Dawson in Boston is doing the same thing in classrooms. Molly Barker, not far from here in Charlotte, um, is focused on fifth through eighth grade girls. She has 76,000 volunteers and growing rapidly. You know, that's an age group where uh, the mean girl, i.e. the opposite of the empathetic girl, becomes up. Mm -hmm. So these are 
Four out of 700 examples out of the 3,000 Ashoka Fellows who are focused on children and young people. We know how to solve the problem. What we have got to do now is make sure that every parent knows how to parent. And we change what happens in the schools. Our goal in this example of collaborative entrepreneurship is that Five years from now, 80% of the elementary school principals everywhere in the world will know that they are failing if there is one second grader who has not grasped empathy, and if all the kids aren't practicing. Now, how many elementary school principals do you know today even think about that? Now, this is an example of where the universities can make a huge difference. There's research to be done. There's a refinement. There's systemization. There's major reforms that the schools have had. There's, if you're studying poverty, what's going on in the ghettos? Um, if you're trying to understand the history of this era, you've got to understand this. Well, this is one piece. And then Ashoka's Youth Venture picks up for the teenagers. They have got to be practicing empathy as the base and then actually practicing teamwork, leadership, for change. It's the only way you learn this. You don't read a book. You've got to go and practice it. Well, how do we, we make that very difficult in most high schools? Not in the elite 1%, but in the rest of them. So how do we change it? So we, that's another area we could work on. And I just give you, you know, the, the thing that's so powerful about this is that we are, in effect, creating for the first time a team of the leading social entrepreneurs and business entrepreneur partners uh, focused on whatever issue is ripe. Now, how does this work? When we get a couple of hundred fellows, these people are very powerful. The, uh, Ashoka does evaluations at the end of nine years, uh, at the end of five years, which we've done for nine years now. Over half the fellows have changed national policy within five years. Three quarters have changed the pattern in their field at the national level on an average of three different ways. So you get a couple of hundred of these people and each of them has bet their life that they can cause really big change in this area. Big change is coming. It's not because you know, we have some crystal ball and we're so smart. We just have this Geiger counter that says, big change coming here. And then we, <laughs> we, we look and say, okay, well, what are the patterns? And among the patterns, which are the ones that are forward looking? And from there, you have to be able to articulate the paradigm, and then you want to launch off and how together do we tip the world. So uh, the, the old paradigm was learn knowledge and rules. The new paradigm is you've got to be a change maker before you're adult, which means you've got to have mastered empathy, teamwork, leadership, change making. And to do that, you've got to be practicing it from first grade onward. That's a very profound mm -hmm. new paradigm. It's very fact, simple. We saw yesterday one of the great examples I was telling you earlier when Adora um, spoke on, right? Uh, for those of you who were here yesterday, uh, we listened to this maybe, I don't know, she's she 10 years old, um, tell us that we needed to ban childishness from our vocabulary as a disparaging term. And uh, I, I thought that we saw a beautiful display of of real empathy when uh, we listened to Aman Bibars uh, talk to us about the revolution in Egypt and how she was following the, the young people. And she challenged universities to live up to 
young people's expectations. Um, you talked about, Greg, students demanding new pathways and opportunities um, because they don't want to uh, do whatever they need to do to make money and then give back. They want alignment from the get-go. Um, Adora says, kids get it, adults forget it, right? So she says, we want to become better adults. So this idea of, of being able to actually um, develop a way that we cultivate um, empathy and these other skills, the whole social and emotional intelligence realm. In fact, Kevin um, talked about <coughs> wiping out MBAs and saying we should have masters in moral courage, um, that that's what's needed. Um, in the, the, the global level, Greg, you've been playing a role um, helping to chair, I think, groups for the World Economic Forum. Um, the, the world of Davos is probably one of the more exclusive clubs, right, that we've got. Um, I don't know how diverse it is. Um, uh, I know it's been becoming more, more diverse yeah. over the last decade, certainly, with a lot of pushing and the entrance of social entrepreneurs into this sphere. Um, you've been chairing, I think, a council on social entrepreneurship and, and maybe now social innovation. What, what insights do you have to share with us on how the, the world of business and government and these these rarefied circles are thinking about this space? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, and I, if, if we had time, I'd come back to because I think the empathy point is also very important. I'd just sort of pick up on that a little bit, because I do think it's got to it's be a sort of mature and smart empathy. We've got 15 minutes. We've Go got ahead. 15 minutes. All right, so we'll come back to this, because I don't want to lose that thread, because I think empathy is certainly the base, but empathy has some biases in it, because empathy is something that we often feel for those who are close to us and those most like us. Um, and the instinct grew out of sort of in-group collaboration. So we've got to teach people to have empathy for those who are less like them. And I think that's part of what this teaching has to, has to reach out to. And that gets to this, I'll, I'll use it as a bridge to this Davos and the World Economic Forum, because I think there was a period in which it was very much a lot of people who were very, very much like each other, and they probably only sort of connected with the, with the similar people in the room. And I think there's an effort now to, to create more diversity there so that maybe they can get to know folks who aren't so much like them, mm. um, so that they can have a little more empathy for people who are not quite uh, exactly the same as, as they are. Um, because it's really, I mean, one of the things is that empathy as, a, as an instinct is one that has, it has some limits to it. Um, and I think it's one that we've got to cultivate, and we have to cultivate in a very smart, very smart way. Because it's, um, it's, it, it is uh, often bounded, and we need to stretch it out to those who, for whom we don't naturally feel it. It's that question of when you say, uh, love thy neighbor, as yeah. myself, the, the question is, who's your neighbor? Yeah. How do you define your backyard? Um, we heard a lot yesterday about that our backyard needs to be the whole world. We also heard Kimberly Jenkins say that the golden rule is hit the ground listening. So I've just been told we've got a roving mic uh, somewhere. Uh, and so uh, we very much, um, I know, would like to hear from the audience your questions or, or comments in our last 15 minutes. We'll share it, okay. right? Um, sure, why not? So uh, if, if uh, I can't actually see anybody with uh, a mic in their hand, um, yeah, but 
you're, you're not participating here, right? Unless you want to start the questions. Does somebody want to jump in? Because I know Bill wants to talk to us more about, ah, here we go. Uh, no? Nothing burning. Okay, ben, we've we got, got a in, hand, the, we have a hand in the center here. here. Uh, and just uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Nancy Wilson. I'm the director and associate dean at Tisch College at Tufts University. And Susan, we met in Bangladesh. We both worked for the Ford Foundation many, many oh years my ago. my God. Yeah. <laughs> I just sort of connected it when I saw you up there. Wow. Uh, one of the missions of Tisch College, because we don't have any students or faculty, is to actually do that working all across the university around citizenship and public service. And I teach a course on social entrepreneurship because I see that as uh, an important element. And when you were talking about how to reach across a university, I think one of the additional pieces that we've found really important is to figure out how to get our topic into the research agenda of faculty. Um, to just ask them to teach another course uh, or a different course is a very um, short-term incentive that will disappear almost as soon as you stop having the additional resources yep. to support that additional course. But where you can incentivize them to tweak their research agenda ever so slightly so that it's got a civic mission in our case, um, or in this broader understanding of a so social entrepreneur kind of connection, then you really start to build it into their long-term stream of interest and it finds its way into the classroom. Uh, because I find most faculty actually are faculty because they wanted to make a difference in the world. Uh, they wanted to create some new knowledge that would have impact and or teach young people. So it aligns with their values. They've just been sort of trapped about how to express those values. Uh, because of the pressures of tenure and so on. So I think that uh, even though it's not obvious and it may seem a longer route, that way of institutionalizing into the research agenda is a really important element. Yeah, that's a great point. I want to I talk about that for a minute because one of the things that we did early on was create a faculty research pool uh, out of our center which would provide small amounts of money, not huge amounts of money, but a little bit of money to faculty. Uh, yeah, who are not necessarily affiliated with our center, but who might have a, a research project that would align in some way with what we're doing. Um, and that did prove to seed research. We had people in accounting and finance and marketing. This was just here at the business school initially, and so it, it basically got folks who had some interest to do projects that were related, and that's been really helpful. Um, and we've seen more, and this is, this is what's exciting to me, we've seen more faculty uh, coming to us with interest in doing work in this area. And that's, I think that's terrific. That wasn't happening so much early on. Sometimes we'd have to do the outreach and say, we can see a link between what you're doing and what we're interested in, and let's talk, let's have lunch, and, and something might come out of that. Now it's, there are more people who would approach us and, and talk to us about their research interests. Um, and, and we've made some connections in finance and a couple other areas that are, it's just intriguing to, to see that happen. And I, I think that's, I think it's great and if, to the extent that we can make it easier for them. Some of the big barriers have been data. So in some cases, uh, finding good data on, in the area of social entrepreneurship can be difficult. And so we have to um, sort of help them think through the issue of, of how to get data if, if there's some area in which they want to do work where data may be difficult to collect um, or, or get. So that's mm -hmm. been a challenge for some of them. But uh, otherwise, we've, uh, I think that's a, that's a very important point. And, and we've tried to make it as easy as possible for people to do work in this area. But I think it goes further than just the research on social entrepreneurship. And it goes yeah. to the question of problems. And so yes, engage right. 
Nancy, we're going to have to open yeah. it up to can, others. Can I, I, I just can't resist. This uh, is exactly the core issue for the people in this room. How does everyone here jujitsu their university and the universities over this transition? And so, I, so there are a couple of things I'd suggest. One, who are the constituencies that will give you power? Well, the students care, the alumni care. Select alumni that are entrepreneurs, are the people who love the university but are pretty frustrated about the stovepipes, etc. That's a very important alliance. If mm -hmm. you add to that uh, the fact that th through this collaboration with the uh, collaborative entrepreneurship new knowledge bases, these are going to change every field because every field now has to change as we go through this historic transformation. Look at up Harvard Business Review. September, there's an article about hybrid business social value chains. We've had two systems. They don't talk to one another for every need. You collapse them now because you can into one. You have a huge productivity gain. You can't have a business school teaching strategy in the next couple of years, it doesn't take that into account. Uh, just new housing for informal sector workers, a completely failed market in India alone, we've, in the last year and a half, by applying that, have created 10,000 units, 120 million private financing. That's a $240 billion market just in India. Um, before you take into account the 700 million new people who are going to move into the cities, let alone the rest of the world. Well, that's a big market. That's only one industry. Right. Look at health or irrigation. Now, you, how can you have a business school that doesn't take that into account? Well, if you're one of the first faculty who sees that, oh, you've got something really cool and powerful. And it's going to be interesting to the alumni also. It's a very important point, the constituencies with power. So is that Edgar um, yeah. there with the mic? And then um, let's pass it up to the woman in the yellow and then the woman on the corner here. We'll take all three of your comments or questions. Anybody on this side? And this gentleman here, um, take notes if you need to. Um, please be quick. Uh, Home Ed stretch, folks. OK. Uh, Edgar Kahn, both professor of law and an Ashoka fellow. Uh, and at my law school, I'm trying to explain to him that imparting competency in lawyering to practice in a medieval guild system is probably not how we'll ever get to justice. <laughs> but my, um, but, my, um, but, but my, my comment really goes to the important of, uh, importance of currencies. The currencies of money you know I'm experimenting with, but the currency of academia is course credits, degrees, and grades. If you want to change a, a dynamic, you use you you mess with that medium of exchange called grades, and you you put in a decimal system. If you want more, if you want uh, less competition, so we need to look at both the units uh, the the units of the medium of exchange in academia are fundamental to what we produce, and you produce different dynamics when you alter uh, both course credits. Uh, Degree, degree requirements, portfolios, and so forth. And I think that all of us can look at that, the medium of exchange we use in academia. That's all. Thank you, Edgar. Uh, let's send the mic right back up. 
Hi, my name is Willa. I'm a senior at Harvard. And um, my question goes back to your point on data. And I talk to lots of professors and students who are very interested in this field and they want to do a lot of work. Um, but then they find that when they go to lay down what they want to do, they have trouble measuring the variables because so much of it seems intangible given um, the research that's already been done and what's accepted as reliable. So I'm wondering uh, what you guys have tried in terms of measuring empathy or happiness or strength of social ties and marriages in a population um, that can be conveyed and articulated in a way that would be accepted well in the academic community and just um, to the broader population? Like, how do you uh, measure and present something like this? Thanks, Willa. And the uh, woman down here on the corner, Erin, if you can move quickly and not fall down the stairs here. Okay. Hi, I'm Judith Cohn. Um, Kaufman Foundation is where I spent the last 15 years, and we were wise enough to invest in Greg Dees a long time ago when he was yes, just starting this you. work. So that's one of the best decisions we made. The other thing is I ran the Kaufman campuses, and now I'm the special assistant to Chancellor Holden Thorpe at UNC, so now I'm living it, and I'm on the ground. And all the I have a question about the non academic side of the university, the, the non-curricular, and the, the power of students, as you were saying. Um, and I'm interested in your thoughts about how you mobilize that non-academic side of the university, working through student affairs, career services, and student groups, which I think is the real secret weapon at UNC. And we let them run with the ball. It's been pretty amazing. Thank you so much, Judith. Uh, the gentleman here. I'm sorry I didn't with the lights even recognize you. How many people here have received Kaufman money over the years? Can we, can we hear by noise, by clapping here? I think a real credit to uh, your farsighted and, and perhaps somewhat accidental expansion of the field, but I know not in your case. Um, Hi, my name is Michael Finney from the Thunderbird School of Global Management. Bill, you, you made a couple of comments earlier that made me curious about some definitional issues. And um, you talked about us being a team of team. And you talked about, you know, it really is sort of a movement that's going on. But you said something I'm curious about. I want to know who defines the good of all. Did, did you say you were made furious or curious? Curious. Curious. <laughs> Don't mistake my southern accent. It's a good Okay. No, I'm, I'm quite Darling, curious. I wouldn't be mistaken. I just want to make sure we were yeah. talking about curiosity. Yeah, and not curiosity. Fury here. I mean, okay. it's like who is it, who is it that's going to define yeah. the good of all, and where are you going to build a consensus good, to reach that question. definition? Thank you. All right, we're we're going to give you both chance to comment on or, or respond to any of these questions or points. Thank you all. Any any and all of these. I, I will make a, an an amendment on the Kaufman thing. So. The, the accidental part came after a transition. So early on, it was very deliberate. So Kaufman invested in social entrepreneurship for some time um, early on deliberately. I, and in fact, funded the two books that I edited, um, as well as a number of other things, until there was a leadership transition. And ah, yeah, the yeah. new leader was not as fond of social entrepreneurship as the prior administration. Um, and it was after that that uh, I think the, uh, the birth of social entrepreneurship on some of the campuses was probably not his intention, but um, it had it occurred. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a transition. That, so the accident happened later. I think early on they were, they were certainly a big supporter and I think helped plant the seeds uh, for this field, which we, we need to be grateful for. 
Um, so I will at least make that amendment. I think the, I think the changes happened later. Um, uh, in terms of, um, of some of the other questions, uh, I, you know, I don't think we don't attempt to try to measure things like uh, like empathy and 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 those kinds of measures. I'll leave that question to Bill because we I don't think we've attempted to do any of that in terms of our program and the way our program affects our students. Um, um, and who would uh, define the good for all? I think we haven't. Uh, we haven't come to grips with that, though. That's an interesting, fascinating philosophical question. I'd love to discuss it at, at some point. Um, but uh, I, again, uh, I you know I don't know what time you want to wrap this up, but I but we could that one would be a very interesting one to get into. Uh, but I'd, I'll punt to Bill for okay. Thank you, Greg. That, since he is he's he's my hero. Yeah, we're wrapping now. We're wrapping now. Okay. All right. Well, it's interesting. Two of the four questions have to do with in effect measurement. And of course, this is one of the areas where the universities could and should make a really big contribution. See, he gave it back to you. He did. <laughs> right. yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> you know, it, the, uh, the old measurements, not surprisingly, are designed for an old system and they don't work. When you're trying to bring about systems change, trying to measure body counts doesn't do it. Um, so if you listen to the two examples I gave, they come five years after the entrepreneur gets started. And has the system changed? Has policy changed? Has the system changed? I mean, you can actually see that. Um, in terms of empathy, I'll give you a very simple example. Um, in Canada, for some unknown reason, they have very good statistics on bullying. After Mary Gordon intervenes, bullying rates come down and stay down. Now, uh, I am sure that everyone here could develop, if you thought about it and gave yourself permission, better measures. Um, now let me come to, the, I think, this last uh, question, because uh, I think it's a, it's, it really goes the heart of understanding the world we're going into. In a world that is no longer rules and enforcement, rules set by a few people and enforced by a few people over everyone else, where everyone has to be a change maker. And to be a change maker, you have to, foundation, have to have a very high level of empathetic skill that you apply. That is what makes you happy in life. You express love and respect in action. That's what we all want to do. When you're a change maker, even more when you're an entrepreneur, you can express love and, expre and, and, and respect at a very high level, even more, deeper satisfaction. When a world, the world is filled with change makers, so everyone's like a really smart white blood cell as you lead your life and you see an opportunity for change, you say, yes, this is great, I know what to do. Um, this is a world where the solutions can outrun the problems, especially when you think about combinations. Nobody gets to play unless they're really good at empathy, and you can't be, pretend you're good at it. You really have to be good at it. You have to genuinely, genuinely respect the people around you. And so I think everyone will be trying to do their best to serve the good of all. And because you have a very rich system where everyone is an actor, it is very unlikely to run out of 
you know, it start, if it doesn't work, then the social entrepreneurs come and look at it and say, oh, this is a problem, and this isn't working at this local institution because it's hurtful to people. And if it's hurtful to people, the, the management systems collapse. If you're running an organization, right now you, we, we worry about technical skills and analytical skills. How many organizations worry about helping people be really good people. Well, in this world where everyone is a ballet dancer, where we're all on trapezes together, whatever, this very complicated dance of, of everyone an entrepreneur, with things moving very fast and everyone being very powerful, people have to be good people. And all the incentives, I mean, right now we're in the middle of this messy, somewhat painful transition where you still have rules and enforcement, except it doesn't work, so corruption is going up. And the old systems are in our heads, and it's very, very dysfunctional. And that's exactly why, again, if I could end on this point, the universities and the entrepreneurs, the social entrepreneurs, regardless of field, who are in it for, who are, are in it for the good of all, that's what defines us, have got to work together. There is so much to work out, and, and Agar, if I, what, you know, the, the problem about the law is, you know, we, I mean, one problem about the law is you, it, you, this is a system, the common law system is totally brilliant, but it was designed for a rate of change 800 years ago. And as you go up that curve, how well will this system adapt? Well, that's a really fundamental question that every law school should be asking. And how many law schools are? Well, there, here's yet another example of why the universities are important. Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, Willa, I would just add that in terms of the best empirical research that I've seen on, on empathy and the full range of social and emotional intelligence, um, you can turn to castle.org. It's the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. And uh, the American Institutes of Research, uh, David Osher and uh, his team in particular, uh, have an overview of the, of the field uh, Roger uh, Weinberg at Castle, and this will be a growing area. In fact, the Clinton Global Initiative has just created an affinity group on social and emotional learning, um, and because we've got very good evidence that you can improve your math skills, in fact, through mindfulness, um, you can teach happiness as a skill, you can teach certainly empathy, and it's the, the intersection between what the, the neuroscientists have been doing with the Dalai Lama for for the last two decades, and why now there's the Dalai Lama Fellows being started on college campuses and in civil society organizations, something Bill and I both are involved, um, so that you put compassion in action. Um, so these, these, um, the, the, these trends, I think that you've heard, um, probably don't do justice at all, which is why we have today. Um, there's a beautiful array of workshops, and I know probably you want to go to all of them. Um, we do have uh, um, one more innovation in our program. I understand we've arranged for the coffee to come at 10 o'clock so that you actually get the chance to hear the quick explanation of what the award-winning ideas are. So I'd encourage you um, to stay if you can. If you absolutely need to, to leave, you're, you're most welcome. After you join me in giving a great thanks to Bill Drake and Great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Great. Go ahead. Thank you, Greg.
produced by Duke University, online at duke.edu.